Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Something different today for Masters Week on sports and gambling media. Today I'm joined by Pat Mayo of DraftKings and the Mayo Media Network. This is episode 15. From cashing in by betting on the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, to the mainstream sports media shift to gambling coverage, to the future of podcasts, we start with why the sports media is lacking technologically. It's Masters Week. Uh, I wanted to start there because I, I remember going back to the last, what I would say, real Masters in 2019. Uh, it was really like the best at work experience I think I've ever had. It was like you could see shots from every angle. You could follow any you know, groups you wanted to see. And it, it reminded me not only just that that the Masters themselves are op- obviously operate autonomously and have the ability to, to do this with angles and apps and coverage, but also how poor a lot of other sports media coverage is, even though we're in 2021 and you think with technology evolution, we would be in a better place. So I, I guess I wanted to start there. Looking at golf, looking at at really the entire sports landscape, why do you think that, that we are still not getting the kind of sports media experience, uh, TV experience particularly, that that maybe other areas of media have adapted to? I think a lot of it has to do with cost. Cost and demand would be the two things. The Masters can get away with doing this. They've partnered with IBM for their app, and IBM has done such a terrific job of you know, real-time video 
population on that app, which is kind of crazy. And you can get away with it at the Masters too, because it's a very small field. You play the same course every single year, so you know where the camera angles are going to be. And it's funny because the Masters doesn't really have a need to actually do this versus some of the other events. They just kind of took it upon themselves to go do it. It's not like CBS is paying them to provide this great content through the app. But when I just look at the PGA Tour in general, they don't have any of this stuff. And I think they don't know where their consumer base is, and they're starting to figure that out. And that applies to all sports. So let's say Red Zone, for example. Yeah, NFL NFL. Red Zone, yeah. Yeah, like when the idea of Sunday Ticket first came in, you could watch any game. A lot of people probably, I'm guessing, were like, who the hell would want to watch any of this stuff? And then it turned out that anyone who had a fantasy team wanted to watch every single game. Hence, Red Zone becomes a thing like, I just want to see who is scoring, and that's what I want to watch, just the action. So eventually, we're going to get to a point where I'm going to guess it's going to be like MLB.tv, who's had this product for ages, and no one really seems to use it all that much, because I guess baseball, just by and large, whether it's gambling on baseball, whether it's fantasy on baseball, it's the sport that's taken the biggest nosedive over the past 10 years in terms of popularity within the space. You just see the numbers go down and down and down every single year. But I used to be able to, in like 2013, 2014, stream the MLB.tv app, mirror it to my TV, and set up my fantasy lineup and those guys would come up on the screen when it was their turn to bat. Like oh, wow. that sort of interactivity is just lost on a lot of people. And I think once either New York, Texas, or California falls in the legalized sports betting market, then we're going to see a huge ramp up in terms of a lot of this customization because when you have that many people, and it's not to say that there aren't gamblers out there already in either legal spaces or even offshore spaces, but once you get those three states to come on board, that's such a high percentage of the population, that you're going to see more demand for this stuff. And once they see that there's actual demand out there for that stuff, they can start charging for it. And people in this space, whether it be gambling or whether it be daily fantasy sports or regular fantasy sports, they're willing to pay for this stuff. And a lot of the general population just isn't. So I don't think that they feel they can make it viable. The issue is right now is they're not creating the proper infrastructure to have this all in place to flick the switch. Or maybe they do, and I, I'm just not aware of it. Nothing I've heard actually lends itself to that. And they have to get over this notion that everything needs to be 4K, HD right. broadcast quality. Like That's not what people are looking for. People just want to see the shots. They, yeah. they just want to see the action. They don't care if it's 720 or filmed from someone's phone. They just want to see it. I was going to say, get someone on each hole with, a, with an iPhone and, and covering, you know, it, tracking each group or something, and, and people would be fine with that and probably pay for it. Uh, no, it's funny about the Red Zone. I, I've watched that with my wife sometimes, and my wife is like, what are you watching? Like, this is giving me a headache, and how could you be enjoying this? And I'm like, well, I'm not watching it because I'm trying to watch a great football game. You know, it's a, there's different reason that's happening that we're, we're watching this. Um, I, I do want to get to the the kind of the, the, the fact that we are still in the early days of this, as, as you mentioned, with new states bringing on gambling. But um, it, it made me think of like NBC's, I don't want to say it's its first attempt at a kind Oof. of gambling show, the uh, NBC Sports Edge BetCast stream, I believe it was called, uh, that, that came, I believe it was a couple weeks that, that, that during this, this most recent golf season. And, and it was, you know, it, it was really lacking. I think it was a, it was a nice, uh, I think, A for effort. Um, I mean, they tried something, um, but that it didn't really work. So, so, you know, why do you think it doesn't work? How do we improve this in the short term? 
you have to understand who your audience is. And I've talked to a few people who were in the running to become on the production team of that specific show. So it's a merger between, I believe, PointsBet and NBC. And they're either streaming on NBC Gold or Peacock or whatever the hell it's called now. You know, these, these streaming services change their name so often. I just got Paramount Plus. So <laughs> I, guess that's better than C- I guess that's better than CBS All Access. I have no idea. I think it's but, the same or something. I don't know. But yeah. I, I think they have. I just wanted to watch the challenge, so that's the only way that I can watch it now. Um, and, and I'm international, so I have to get like a VPN in order to get it because I can't find it up here in Canada. So, the the biggest problem is sort of a not understanding of who your audience is for this sort of product. They geared that gambling show, the the full time gambling show, to people who have never bet on anything before, and. I get the idea behind it, like, hey, we'll provide this product. It's going to be gambling-focused. We're going to take it very, very small steps, baby steps, the rudimentary stuff of gambling. And we're going to convert people who love watching golf into betting on golf. And that's really the goal of any of this. How do you get, because it's such a huge market, golf in particular. Um, and you can just see from like the advertisements on my show or just the sort of brands that I get linked up with for golf versus who I get linked up with for, let's say, football season. It's just a completely different audience. It's all old rich dudes, <laughs> essentially. Uh, and that's a great buying market. Like when you watch commercials for golf broadcasts, I think they're high-end cars and, you know, like dick pills and stuff like that, like stuff that old people need, but have disposable income to go spend. But this gambling broadcast is tough because that market that we're talking about, let's say, let's call them 50 to 75. Huge chunk of the golf audience who would watch Jim Nance on a Sunday, yeah. the final three, and like that's the majority of the audience. And I think that people on the internet forget that. For one thing, I've been very guilty of that myself, just trapping myself in an echo chamber, be like, yeah, I mean, for us, this is one thing. Uh, for the people actually out there that you want to, like all my viewers are gamblers. Like I don't need to convert them, they're, they're already doing it. Right. And all this broadcast did was make itself hard to find. It's on a streaming service for one thing. So if you're dealing with like 50 to 75 year olds, they're probably not on NBC Gold seeking out alternative streaming golf broadcasts uh, like early on a Thursday morning. What they should have done is just leaned as heavy as possible into the gambling aspect of it and really understand what gamblers want to see from it. And it just felt like there was a huge disconnect there that if they had started the product that made it super gambling friendly or super daily fantasy friendly from that regard, I think you would have seen a sustained viewership on it. And that could have dictated what they actually showed. Like they were, they were doing things like, oh, is Byun Hun An going to hit the fairway coming up on number six? We'll follow him around shot by shot. <laughs> no one I know bets on golf like that. And well, I know a lot of people that bet on golf. Yeah, no one, no one cares if he does it right. I, no, I know. I, but I do think, like you know, to your point, the barrier to entry in in content that's related to gambling in, in that's you know, that, that's really geared towards that. It, it can be a little bit daunting. And I think, you know, if you're an NBC or an ESPN or something, it takes a little bit to really kind of wrap your mind around it. I, I will say, you know, I've been been listening to to your shows and watching your shows for a few years now. But at first, as I started to get into uh, into, into DraftKings, it was a little bit like, I, I, I feel like there's a club that I don't, I don't belong to yet, you know, with some of the terminology and things. But it, it it took kind of diving in to to really do it, and I and I wonder if you know they they were just too resistant to try that. Um, but the other thing about it is they they really it seems like they made it into like this game show where we're we're some announcers that are going to bet on things and like you know watch us and see what we do. It was like uh you know follow along with us here, and and I think like uh, to some extent Fox Bet Live, which actually you know 
is real gamblers that are that are doing this and they're and they're trying that. And it's a, I think that's a pretty good show on Fox Sports. But that still is also about let's see how you know how how does Clay Travis do? How does you know cousin Sal do? Um, as opposed to making it about the viewer and making it good for the viewer experience. There seems like this there's this this disconnect there. I, I, and don't don't forget about my guy Todd Furman. He, he's yes, he's so. actually like super legit when it comes down to it. That's a great show. I quite enjoy it. I think that there is a element of fun that you can have with this stuff and betting against each other and making live bets. But you have to think that the only reason that people are tuning into this is to think about their bets. There's always the fantasy sports things like no one cares about your fantasy team at all, like you do, and that's it. That's the extent of the people in the world who care about your fantasy team. <laughs> it stops and ends with you. Ditto for bets. Golf betting, betting is a little bit different and betting is a little bit more fun versus fantasy sports because I can tell you like, hey, I'm betting Justin Thomas to win the Masters. And you're like, okay, I'll bet Justin Thomas too. Now, both of us are rooting for Justin Thomas right, to win right. the Masters. So there's actually a more communal element to wagering uh, than there would be in traditional fantasy sports. And I guess DraftKings sort of uh, skirts that a little bit because like, hey, you know, someone like Patrick Mahomes is 35% owned. Oh, we all need Patrick Mahomes to go off. Then you have the other 65% like just rooting against him and like, good God, I hope there's no touchdown coming. Like that's where the fun of this comes in. And it feels like no one involved in any of this gambling content at a very high level. Now, not so much like the web does a very good job. The independent places do it, but the major networks are either too scared to really dig into the degenerate element, why people love gambling. And you have to come to terms with that. If it's going to be legal, like, you know, it would be like doing a show that you know, talks about smoking the entire time, but no one on the show smokes because <laughs> you can't have that on TV. But, you know, we're taking smoke, big smoking's money, you know, but we can't do it. Like, at least Fox Bet Live gets the idea of, hey, here are people that bet on things. They can talk about this in a very sensible way or even in a crazy way. Just if they're emotional betters, if they're stat-based betters, whatever they might be, and you try to fuse that together to make an actual watchable show, eventually the broadcasts are going to have to do that too. Yeah. And the first attempt was a big swing and a miss, but I like that they're attempting it because I think they can judge from here on out. Now it's golf, so that will take like eight years to figure <laughs> out. But... Oh, it's nice to see the PGA leaning into this. I didn't think that they would so early, to tell you the truth. And they've been an early adopter. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And it does, I, I don't know, I, as a, an observer of sports and a, and a fan of sports, I think that, that golf really lends itself to this even more so than, than other sports. Probably at golf and NFL, probably right up there as, as the big two. Um, but, but yeah, there, there's been this big shift. I mean, I remember ESPN back in the day when they pretended that fantasy sports didn't exist or they had like Eric Carabell and Matthew Barry like relegated to some like random little, little spot on ESPN.com. Obviously, things have massively changed since then. Um, even the shift from fantasy to gambling, um, it has has shifted. Now they talk about lines on uh, you know on on the show and um, the Action Network. Chad Millman going there. Colin Cowart now building this gambling theme podcast network. And as you mentioned, we're still really in the early days of this kind of the, the wild west here in the U.S. of of which states even allow this to happen. So so I do think you know as, as this grows. Where do you think this goes? Do you see this more in the Colin Coward builds a gambling theme podcast network? Maybe that turns into a, a channel that's a gambling channel. Or do you see ESPN saying, we're going to take this over and make this part of what we're doing? I can see ESPN doing that. Their, their biggest move, just like all of these places, like they have this affiliate with you know, PGA has points bet, but they're also partners with William Hill and DraftKings somehow. I don't quite understand how all of that works, but 
like I think ESPN owns a part of DraftKings as well. They might have their hands in other things too. Like let, let's just say just a hypothetical ESPN and DraftKings merge or they link up uh, in some, I mean, merge would probably be tough because one's a Disney owned property and DraftKings is traded as its own individual right. stock now uh, ever since going public. But let's say they form some sort of partnership where then ESPN could push people to go bet at DraftKings Sportsbook. I think then there would be enough money in the content from there because they can just push so many people in order to go play there that it would be worth it for DraftKings to shell out big bucks to acquire all these new customers. And then you could actually pay for the content. You say, Colin, I actually hadn't heard Colin Coward is starting a uh, sports gambling network. I have a sports gambling network. That's not good for me. Is it better to go corporate or stay independent in the sports media world? That's coming up next. You've got the Mayo Media Network, uh, which is the YouTube network and podcast, fantasy sports, sports betting. It's got culture and other other elements to it. Um, and you also have kind of straddled this line in a lot of ways between obviously not traditional and like legacy media, but but more, you know, the corporate side of it going, you know, towards, you know, maybe working for a DraftKings to going independent and building your own your own thing. So I, I'm curious in your experience, particularly now as you build this new thing, what what are some of the cost benefits of of going independent versus being part of something that is maybe a little bit more corporate. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I, I just saw the ability for expansion. And for so long, like owning my own content was just... it. I wish I had realized this six years ago that owning my own content was going to be so valuable. Just being able to, you know, I'll, I'll film a 90-minute show every single day, but having the ability to chop out five 90-second clips and then sell those clips off to a third-party digital media populator. That if you go to some sort of newspaper's website, that those random audio, those, those random videos that autoplay when you pop up, well, you might see the Pat Mayo experience right. uh, in there. You, you might see something from fantasy hockey pictures and bets, fantasy baseball picks and bets, the UFC show, whatever it might be. So the ability to continue to monetize a lot of the content beyond just doing the show and monetizing it that way um, and having ownership over that was just so big for me this time around. I started the Fantasy Sports Network. I was employee number one back in, well, it was in 2013, wow. but then 2014, we actually launched. It was the first ever 24-7 fantasy sports and betting dedicated TV channel. It was an abject failure because no one getting into the TV market in 2014, as we told the guy who created it, maybe not the best idea. Um, and as it turns out, it was not. <laughs> uh, the, the most, I think the most success that we had, the most viewers that we got was like, you know what we should do is, you know, I go to this site where I like pirate all these links because, you know, I can't get them anywhere. What if I just put our link and just gave it to that website and they would pirate 
our link for us. And then people might actually watch this channel. Um, and that was, I think, our highest source of viewership. That, like Pluto TV, I think did really well. And then okay. YouTube. So I was, I was building this YouTube network. And we started from scratch, nothing. And it had a lot of short-form content. And then I decided to take my audio podcast, The Pat Mayo Experience, and basically make it a video show that was every single day. The same format, same idea, but now it was going to be video and audio. Uh, the problem was it was a very low-budget network. No one, we had no resources. Uh, we had equipment. That was nice. So I built a studio in an like old closet, uh, which ended up becoming the primary studio by the end of it because it was so easy to use. But I had no help. I had no producer. I had nothing. So I had to do every part of the show by myself from building the graphics beforehand to calling the guest on the phone, leaving the guest outside the room, putting in my earpiece and switching the camera <laughs> below the frame of the camera so no one could see what was going on. And then going back in post-production, adding in all the graphics afterwards, sound mixing it, and then promoting it. But it was worth it, obviously, uh, for me to put in that sort of effort at the beginning for no extra pay because uh, it established my show as the show on the network that people wanted to tune into. And I think I built that YouTube channel up to around like 65,000 wow. uh, subs by the time that I left in 2017 to go to DraftKings. And then I go to DraftKings and I lost all my viewers. I had all my audio listeners because I owned the actual audio podcast. So now all of a sudden my show is up on the DraftKings YouTube channel. And they have a pretty decent base. Uh, they had like 25,000, I think, when I got there. And by the time I left, they had 120,000 uh, over the course of those three years. And then once again, uh, when I was doing my contract re-up with DraftKings, and I've stayed with them as a partner, but the big curve out was, you know, I want to own my own content. I want to run this on my own channels. Like you guys barely monetize this as it is. The whole point of this is for the show to grow and me to tell people about DraftKings. That's not going to change. The only thing that will change is that I own the content and it appears on what I'm going to launch as Mayo Media Network. And that will be the flagship show over there. So I was just kind of bummed that you know I had all of these subscribers out there who were tuning into my show. And then every three years, if I change places, if, unless they were downloading the audio podcast, they would just assume the video version just went kaput, like right. it didn't exist anymore. So many people over the years have been like, oh my God, I thought you stopped doing shows in 2018. It's like, <laughs> no, no, I, I've done the show, I think every day since then. You just haven't seen it because you weren't subscribed to where... You had to be subscribed to to see it. So at least now it's in one place and hopefully in perpetuity, they can find the show there. Yeah. Uh, and that was, and then trying to develop new content to go along with mine. That's been tricky to say the least. Right, right. Yeah, that's um, the, uh, uh, I mean, it's like, well, you could have found it as a podcast, but I guess viewer experience is different. I mean, you know, some people really just want to watch the watch it, and some people want to listen to it. And you maybe don't have that crossover necessarily for people to be able to to find a, to find it on the podcast feed rather than the video feed. But um, well, it, it's also easier too. Like a lot of people do ask me, like, why do you put so much uh, emphasis on the video version? Like, in, in full disclosure, like the audio version gets way more listeners than any. Yeah, like I don't, I don't think I've ever had a video do more traffic than an audio download. So like I, I'm very thankful for you know the people that have stayed on the iTunes feed, the Apple Podcast feed, the Spotify feed, the Stitcher feed over the years. But that's never changed. So I had the exact same audience that I had building since 2011 uh, from that feed. And either you subscribe or you don't subscribe or you leave after time. But that 
audience has always stayed the same and I'm always having to try to rebuild myself on the video side. But the biggest benefit of YouTube in the video side are the SEO purposes that go along with it. Like it's hard to find new shows on Apple Podcasts. Like oh, it's you need ridiculous. you need to be you need to know what you want to be looking for. And like just randomly walking into a new show is, you know, it doesn't happen all that often for podcast listeners. So at least with YouTube, uh, where that, you know, it's owned by Google. So if you Google search something related to my show's content, my show might pop up and you might be able to discover it that way. So even if you had a pure audio podcast, I do think it would be worth it just to post the audio, not even video onto YouTube, just to get into the Google machine. The world of podcasts, still the wild west and the lack of a discovery mechanism. That's coming up. But first, I want to dive into polls. To give you an example, I want to use a COVID relief bill poll that CNN put out. Here's a tweet. The COVID-19 relief bill moving through Congress is broadly popular in new CNN poll shows. This comes as President Biden's approval rating tilts positive around 50 days after he took the oath of office. It's, quote, broadly popular. In the segment, the anchor described it as having substantial support. According to CNN's poll, 94% of Democrats, 58% of independents, and even 26% of Republicans support the bill. That looks nothing like the zero Republicans who are going to be voting for it, said David Chalian in the segment. But let's dig in. I love that CNN makes its crosstabs and poll questions available for everyone to wade through. So how was the question asked? Here was the exact framing of the question. As you may know, Congress is considering a bill that would attempt to provide economic relief by sending another round of stimulus checks, extending the availability of unemployment assistance and nutrition assistance, offering additional loans to small businesses, providing funding to K-12 through schools to help a return to the classroom, and increasing federal spending on coronavirus vaccine distribution and development. The bill has a total estimated cost of around $1.9 trillion. Based on what you have heard or read about it, do you favor or oppose the bill that Congress is considering? So just imagine for a second that you get called by a person who's conducting this poll and asks you that exact question. How would you respond? And does that feel like an accurate framing of the bill all in? Who says no to this? CNN asked specifically about parts of the bill like providing larger tax credits for families and making them easier for low-income households to claim and providing nearly $130 billion to K-12 schools to help students return to the classroom. And they found broad support. Not polled? $500 million for museums and Native American language preservation. $112 million for a subway in Silicon Valley. And on and on. Those are parts of the bill, too. This is what happens when we distill everything down to the most simplistic terms. With a $1.9 trillion price tag, the media owes it to the public to get more specific than the surface, quote, everyone loves COVID relief framing. We'll get back to the interview with Pat Mayo in one second. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscription, no credit card, no trial, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. Now, back to Pat. As we're talking, I'm also thinking of my, you know, and this is for the Fourth Watch podcast. I'm also thinking about the uh, the Megyn Kelly show, which I launched, uh, you know, which, which we launched about six months ago, and uh, and yeah, I, I, you know, one of the things I, 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 I guess discovered in in really, you know, being the executive producer there and trying to find an audience is the discovery mechanism for podcasts is, you know 
horrendous. I mean, it, 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 the discovery mechanism is horrendous. Analytics are really bad. Um, it's it's almost shocking that we're you know we're probably ten years into the podcast world and nothing has really developed from that. I, I know Spotify I think is starting to make a a bigger effort to to change that a little bit um, because Apple doesn't seem to be very interested in in trying to. Um, but but it's it's surprising. I mean, the, especially when you compare that to like you know that what Google Analytics gives you for a website, for example, or even YouTube for for video. Podcast world is still very much the wild west too. It is. And there's, and a, I mean, Apple podcast destroys everything else. I think that's what advertisers end up looking at. And like, it's, it's almost a take your word for it kind of thing because Apple, much like Netflix is what benefit do they really have to giving you the proper analytics? They don't really, why not keep it secret? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, the the benefit I would say is that is only if Spotify comes up with with it for you, and 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 it's such an appealing thing that it, it allows people to put more emphasis on that because you're getting actually some some residual benefit from it. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I'd love to just know how long someone listens to a podcast. I think that the drop off point is is you know huge. So I don't know. There, there's there's some things I feel like that if if they opened it up a little bit, they would get more people to uh, to maybe pay attention and. And if they came up with a, a a mechanism for you to say, you know, maybe maybe uh, oh, you listen to this podcast. Here's a good way to discover some other ones that you might like. You know, something that's a little bit more, less clunky than it is right now. It would be would be good. Yeah, that that would be really nice. <clears throat> but uh, the one thing that I've really pointed to because, like, do you trust when you see the download numbers on a podcast, like your podcasts? Do you trust that those numbers are accurate? Because I don't know if I do. Well. I trust is, you know, is relative. I mean, I, I think that it gives a general gauge. The, the thing I've heard is that it, it accounts for approximately what one minute, a one minute listen counts as a download, uh, my understanding of it. And so, you know, yeah, I think that there it's, it's somewhere around that number. Um, but that's not necessarily like, you know, I came from the, the, the world of, of TV ratings and like Nielsen, like it's when I was at CNN and some other places, that one is, is a total, you know, shit show. I mean, there, no one knows anything about, it. I mean, Nielsen is sort of making an estimate, extrapolating out of from like a few thousand households. It's a total mess, but everyone, you know, cares about it so much and advertisers care about it so much. And it doesn't really, you know, ultimately give you an accurate representation. Whereas like a website traffic is it's almost too specific, I think. Um, and advertisers rely on that too much. So I guess it's probably somewhere in between, but more on the TV side. I'm just surprised that there hasn't been more innovation with podcast advertising or even video advertising. So whenever I get a new advertiser on board, they're like, oh, we want to run a mid-rule. It's 60 seconds or 90 seconds. What's your CPM? Uh, how much, and which if people don't know, is how much an advertiser pays per a thousand listens and or downloads. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, on the low end, you could see like $10. On the high end, you could get like 50 bucks if it's something that's, you know, super valuable. So if your podcast does do a lot of downloads, there's some real money to be made in, in that space. Like, like I assume like the Ringer podcast network, they always seem to be doing very well in terms of listenership that they must fund themselves pretty well off that. I know they're owned by Spotify now, but I assume that's what made them so valuable to begin with. But I've been trying to tinker around with like, generally when I hear an ad on a show, I, I actually adjusted my iTunes settings that instead of like fast forward 30, rewind 15. It's fast forward one minute, rewind 30 seconds. So I just, you know, double click the skip 60 twice and then I'm through the ads. Like, 
I, I barely listen to them. And I know that's a problem from someone who consumes podcasts. And I think about my ads. I'm like, does anyone even listen to these things? Right. I don't know. And I, I always pitch the idea of 10 to 15 second ads. And by the time that you pull your phone out to skip the ad, the ad's already over. That instead of doing one mid-roll for 50 seconds, just you know, pay for three 15-second ads that get spliced throughout the show. Like, bum, 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 and we're back to the show. And then at least people would hear it that way. You would guarantee people would hear it that way. Yeah. Yeah, now that's interesting. I mean, now we're into the into the very insular world here. But I'm, I also think a lot about you know a lot of podcast advertisers want those um, you know direct uh, like like URLs to be able to track exactly uh, how many people came to it you know to a, a landing page for example um, or used a promo code, um, and that's usually a way for them to track these kinds of things. But you know even then the margin for success is pretty small. I, I will say. I mean the percentage of of you know the CPM versus what they would consider or success is, is pretty small. I think they know that a lot of people are skipping these ads. So if they can get, if they could just get a few, uh, it feels good for them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I run like the promo codes and the specialty links. It's usually as code mayo everywhere. And advertisers, I, I mean, my audience by and large, and this is actually really strange too. So you can have an audience, let's say my audience is 25,000 people per day. We'll throw it a, throw it a estimate there. And, you know, for certain shows, it's going to be up to 75,000. When I talk about the challenge, it might be like 10,000, <laughs> just depending on what the topic is right. that day. Uh, but like my audience by and large is a very consumer heavy audience. So what I found through my demographics, and I can find this parse this out on my YouTube channel as well, is that I have a high male audience, which is not shocking because I talk about fantasy sports and sports betting. So it's like a 90-10 split between male and female. And the average age is... I would say that 80% of my audience is between 24 and 49. Um, it's attractive for advertisers. It is, but my audience by and large is this gambling audience, is this fantasy sports audience. So they're somewhat youthful, depending on where they fall over that spectrum. But they're all people who aren't afraid to buy things online. Like they're absolute consumers. Like, you know, these are the same people that are throwing down $500 a week on bets on a random golf tournament or playing $1,000 on DraftKings per week on an NFL slate. Like they'll buy some Magic Spoon. That's not a problem. (laughs) We just got Magic Spoon, by the way, for the Megyn Kelly show. Very excited. Magic I, I had they like they sent me some. I, I told them. I said. I said. I, I hear you all the time on uh, Pat Mayo's uh, podcast. They were like. They were very excited. Uh, yeah, I think they re up for the entire year with me. Uh, so it must be doing well. I tried some. It's it's great. I can't. I, wait to I really them. enjoyed it. <laughs> Good. This is free advertising for Magic Spoon now. Um, it's just a product I enjoy now. Right. Well, that that's they want that also, right? Authenticity. Um, I like. On some level, I do think that you mentioned like the ringer. I, I don't know what the, you know, I don't know the inside of it. Um, but I, I, I would imagine that Bill Simmons personally is such an enormous driver of the financial success of, of the ringer. And, and it kind of speaks to the, the podcast world in general. It's very, very top heavy. The, you know, even like I listen to you and I listen to a couple other uh, fantasy, you know, DraftKings golf podcasts. I, I have no idea the numbers, but my sense is that you're kind of way above. And then there's others that are kind of, you know, that are very insular and, and down below. And I think that that speaks to a lot of them. I mean, there's lots of podcasts, but you look at that top charts, it's going to be the same. And, and I don't think people understand just how much the top charts versus the even, you know, the hundred or 200th ranked episode from that week is is a huge disparity. And um, that also speaks to a problem. And I think that also is something that that is a challenge for people trying to enter the space. 
Oh, for sure. But it's one of those things where you'd hope it'd be a meritocracy and at some level that it is. But when you get Spotify acquiring podcasts and let's say a very popular podcast like the Bill Simmons podcast, and then all of a sudden, whenever I log into Spotify, Spotify is now promoting that back to me. I mean, I already listened to it. But if I didn't listen to it now, it's discoverable to me in this very, very narrow way where so few podcasts are that, yeah, it's going to create a huge gap from the very top uh, to even the second tier. Like, I think I my show is in like the 99th percentile of people who download podcasts in terms of viewership, and I'm nowhere near as close to the top 001% kind of thing. Right, right. No, for sure. Um, last thing on the, on the podcast world. Um, because I think this is another challenge. You mentioned the way that Spotify and and certainly Apple are making editorial choices about what people see uh, on that, say, home screen. Here's what's new and noteworthy. You know, here's what's what's even trending uh, is kind of a choice ultimately, right? So. I, I wonder, you know, there's been a push now uh, of, of, I know you're on Substack now, Substack's been in the news a lot, uh, and that have there's... They? Have they? Whoa, 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 what's the deal with Substack? Well, I, don't, two, I don't know about this. So two things. I don't know about anything, apparently. Uh, <laughs> well, these are all the, the insular media world stuff that I'm, I'm seeing on Twitter. Uh, so Substack in the news for two reasons. First of all, it just it just it was valued at a massive number as part of a new funding round. Uh, I believe that that broke recently, um, which, is, which is good for Substack. At the same time, there are efforts, uh, certainly among media, you know, what I would call like anti-speech media activists uh, who are are trying to say, hey, you know what, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, mechanisms to to, you know, remove disinformation or misinformation from uh, from websites, from uh, social media uh, with with companies now, but Substack is not under those sort of same guidelines or doesn't have guidelines like that. And podcasts, particularly, um, is one that the area that there is not really a, a mechanism to police that on some level. And I know you you sort of joke uh, about people getting triggered uh, all the time. And I, I wonder if you think that the kind of though that if if they're they're going to start looking at podcasts next, where a joke gone awry could result in some sort of, you know, penalty or punishment. I think that it does already out there that it means it to the individual. So if I say something on my show that, you know, is just completely off the wall or offside uh, and it reaches sort of a, a crossover audience uh, because of that, and then people start coming after me, then I'm personally responsible for that. I don't think that, you know, if I use Anchor as my platform, they, you know, that they're going to ban me. I, I guess they could. But I think a lot of these decisions just come down to business yeah. sense, where, you know, if Pat is a real problem, although he's generating a ton of advertising dollars for us, uh, he gets a lot of downloads to our platform, like, is it worth our while for even the free press of saying that, you know, he can't be on here anymore. Like, will that generate enough goodwill to make up for it? And I think that those are the decisions that a lot of these companies make. Like, I don't think people are imposing a lot of this stuff on them. It's they're making these decisions as businesses to try to comply. And, you know, they don't want to seem like they're the most evil places on earth. And that's all just a PR stunt, too, that would it be good for business if we did this? Uh, it's funny. Cust uh, and I were talking about this uh, on a future episode I have coming up because I'm actually moving. So I have to like bank like two weeks worth of shows oh, wow. that we were talking about, you know, 
corporations having this identity on social media, where I think the example that he used was like, you know, why do I care what Maytag thinks about anything uh, besides washers and dryers? And that's a good point, but it's all just an advertising strategy at some point where if online and on social media that Maytag wants to have a certain opinion on things that's a pretty like through line opinion. I mean, they're hitting a certain segment of the population that might buy their product. My dad is never going to see that. Therefore, he doesn't care about what their social media platform is. So I, I think that what we've seen is that pe- that businesses and corporations are using this talk of, oh, this is problematic talk. This is disinformation to really make themselves seem like real heroes by getting rid of it. And that's all just a PR move in my mind. Oh, totally. It's, it's like a signaling opportunity in a lot of ways. And, you know, you can get part of the conversation on some level and you could also be like, wow, you know, we, they're going to get that, some head nods from from the people that are already on Twitter or wherever they're, they're getting that. Um yeah, no, I, I think that I think it's coming though. I, I, I do think that the the way that podcasts are are kind of this free space right now is uh, it, it's 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 not long for it. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first, Mayo's work life balance when he's churning out content seven days a week. I'm curious about how you got in the business of what you're doing now, because uh, I, I heard on a recent episode you talking about some of the, the people that you were, I believe, in college with uh, in, in broadcasting school um, are doing, you know, your, are kind of your, your friends of the pod uh, now. But, but how did you get from, you know, what, or was this always kind of what you wanted to do? And now how did you turn this into a career? Oh, this is most definitely not what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be writing, producing, and acting, and directing in movies by by this time. I thought I had my like, eight feature films underneath my belt. That was always the, the goal that I had growing up. Once it became very clear that I wasn't going to be playing professional baseball or professional football or professional hockey, uh, kids' dreams. You know, they're sure. just dreams. They don't really work out. Good on those who can, uh, is all I'll say to that. Uh, my cousin actually is going to get drafted in the NHL next year, so wow. maybe he can make it. There you go. Uh, so we're all, we're all rooting... Yeah, we're, we're all rooting for him for that. But uh, I did, geez, uh, I went to college. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Uh, I got an entrance scholarship. I was always a pretty good student. And I was a student and athlete. So that really helped. Um, I was thinking about going, I wrote my, because I'm Canadian, so it's very difficult for me to get to the States without a lot of funding. Uh, so I applied to all the Ivy League schools, but I needed scholarship money in order to go, and that didn't really work out for me. Um, I tore my labrum uh, in my senior year of high school because I was actually a pretty good baseball player at one point. Uh, so that kind of ended all of that. So I stayed local uh, to where I'm from. I'm from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I picked my classes with, I want to say, two days before <laughs> university actually started. Okay. Um, I... I Never went to a guidance counselor or anything like that. It's like, oh, I'm good at sciences. I, I might as well just do math and do sciences. So I, I just overloaded myself uh, first year uh, and basically ended up just withdrawing from all the classes to save my GPA and just college. Just I wasn't good at it. I hated going. I never went. Uh, so for basically six straight years, all I did was smoke weed every single day and had no ambition whatsoever. Uh, stayed playing fantasy sports. Good that advice, kind of kids. Thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it actually took me six years or five and a half years to do my undergrad degree. Uh, after switching universities, uh, I actually ended up really enjoying political science. And you know, I went from sciences into business and then into arts with a focus on political science and mainly U.S. elections, uh, strangely wow. enough. Uh, it just, there was something about, el- especially elections in the United States, that 
election coverage, elections in general, how people break down elections was so much like sports to me that I really found it easy to follow along. It's like, oh, I get this. Oh, it's one person against another person. Here are the different ways that they're trying to win. Here's the data that we have to back this up. Also, they should be focusing money here. Uh, When you you learn about the electoral college being Canadian for the first time, being like, oh shit, like you can kind of game this a little bit and (laughs) allocate your money in different ways if you really want to, uh, to try to get the best possible outcome for you. You don't even need to win all the votes and you can still win this if you're really thinking about it from a strategic fashion. So I I really enjoyed that part about it. So I dug into that. I ended up getting my degree and then, you know, what do do you think the job market was in 2008 for a 23-year-old with a political science arts degree? (laughs) Uh, Not great. Yeah. yeah. And And it was this weird thing where it was so hard to get a job because... I would even apply to you know, a sales position at like Best Buy and stuff like that. And having the degree actually really worked against me because I was not qualified enough based on experience to get any like well, I don't even mean like well, well paying jobs, like good paying jobs, uh, whether it be like an insurance company or something like that, stuff that required a college degree, but I had no experience in the field. Then I would try to go into these in the service industry. And a lot of these service places wouldn't actually take me. They're like, oh, you have a college degree. We know you're not staying here. So they just didn't hire me. So it was just a really weird boat to be in. So I had a friend, uh, all my friends had just, you know, they had done much better in university. Uh, and you know, a lot of them were engineers because that was mainly the programs that I was taking my first year. So they had all moved out to Calgary uh, to be on the oil sands and all of the energy sector. And like they were making tons of money. So one of my best friends was like, hey, just come live with me out in Calgary. Get out of your hometown where you've lived for the past 23 years. Just get a change of scenery. Uh, and he's like, I'll charge you a hundred bucks a month rent. You can just live with me in my condo. He's like, I'm seven days on, seven days off. Just feel free. Just get away from it all. So I did that and I started writing about fantasy uh, for free. I had a lot of time on my hands. Like I said, I was smoking a lot of weed. So I was just up all night anyway. <laughs> and that's essentially how it started. So I started looking into like, how can I make a career out of this? Because everything was free, especially in like 2009. I had my own blog and then someone asked me to write for them. So I was doing like 40 hours a week of work writing for absolutely no pay and thinking like, well, I'm not doing anything anyway. What's the big deal? Uh, And I actually found a broadcasting school in Toronto that specialized in sports media. And, you know, I felt, because I I felt so bad, I felt badly about university just, you know, I ended up with pretty good grades and I put in zero effort, never went to class, just kind of read the book, showed up, wrote an essay, and that was the end of it. Uh, That I thought that if I'm going to go do this like two-year program, I'm actually going to do it for once. Like this is, you know, it's it's time to stop being a kid. Um, And I really envy everyone who went away for college. Like I lived at home (laughs) during college. Uh, And I would, I have two kids now. I, that's the one thing that I'm telling my kids, if you want to go to college with, who knows if that's even going to be viable 18 years from now, if that's going to be a necessity that you're going somewhere else to go do it. You're going to go live by yourself to learn how to become an adult. Because until I moved, I just, I was trapped in a state of this weird, like, senior year of high school, like, first year of college type of mindset where I didn't do anything for my own. My, my mom was doing my laundry for me. Uh, what, what need did I have to grow up? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, so I decided when I moved to Toronto, I was by myself, like, I'm really going to do this. So I got into 
the broadcasting school, the facilities were open 24-7. So I basically spent every single night there learning how to do every aspect of production. Uh, and I really enjoy the production part, the stuff that I still like to do, whether it be the editing, the sound mixing. If I didn't have that skill set and a place to practice it where no one could see, then I would never have been able to launch my own show by myself to put me on the path of where I am right now. And you know, I started producing video when I was there and selling it off uh, to different sites, the sites that I was writing for, other sites. And they were like, oh, wow, video content about fantasy sports in 2011? Like, this is kind of crazy. Uh, and it was valuable at that time because no one was doing it. Yeah. And I was able to buy myself a green screen in my crappy basement apartment uh, <laughs> in this little handy, like, handheld handy cam, uh, a tripod for it and a lav mic. And I, I lit myself from behind and I was able to do green screen. I, I ripped final cut X at the time uh, for my computer off like LimeWire or whatever, like the transfer <laughs> services were at the time. And you know, I was able to start all this up for like 300 bucks. And honestly, it just, you do it so often, you get so many reps in that I started the podcast in 2011, uh, later on that year, just the audio podcast. And I'm glad that those episodes don't exist anymore because I'm sure that they're awful. Right. But by the time that I graduated, I got a job right away in developing YouTube channels for people, getting all these reps on air, short form, long form, whatever it might be. And just throughout time, I've just kind of, I've gotten better on air, obviously, because um, I can't go back and watch any of those videos at that point. Although I do look so, so young compared to what I look like now. It's, it's you know, all, all the lighting really haggers your face over time. Yeah. But well, that sort and, of... Yeah. That, that's sort of how I came up, but, but it was writing, it was audio, it was video, it was doing my own editing, it was learning SEO, it was being able to be technically fluent in audio editing, video editing, camera work, lighting, like just, if I didn't have all of that knowledge, like I don't think anyone would have ever given me a chance. Yeah, that's really, well, and that, that work ethic, I would say, has certainly continued now. I mean, I, you're putting out content, I feel like seven days a week at this point. Um, you're also married with two kids. I mean, how do you balance all this? <laughs> You don't. You just do it. <laughs> and I, I, people talk about this like work-life balance. Like I feel like I do have a good work-life balance. Like I'm home enough. I can work at home enough that I can watch the kids. My wife is still on uh, maternity leave with our second child for the moment, but like she has a very stressful job herself. Like she's a you know she's, she's a high-priced fancy lawyer. Uh, those are long work weeks. So between us, we both have long work weeks, but we're managing it. We're figuring it out. That's what people do, don't they? Yeah. That is, it is, and you, uh, you know, you find it, you find the balance that works for you. So I think that that's uh, that's great. Let me ask you before we jump to the last thing. Um, I, I forgot to mention. I believe you made a ton of money betting on the 2020 election. I, I totally forgot about this. You mentioned it, I think, at some point. So how, how were you? Got, maybe you bring your political science degree into the gambling world here. Um, but how did you make so much money on the 2020 election? Well, the biggest thing was is. I don't think you're allowed to bet on the elections if you're in America. So I don't think any of the legal sportsbook providers will offer election odds. However, I'm not in America. I'm in Canada. So the international markets do allow for all this stuff. And I actually lost a bit of money on the 2016 election because I kept re-upping on Hillary. Oh, really? Live. I, was like, there's no, I was like, there's no way Trump's going to win. This <laughs> yeah. is crazy. Um, so... I learned my lesson from that a little bit, but what I found was, and it's funny, like if you're familiar with my show, you know, my best friend, Tim Andercust comes on, who we just berate and belittle on the show like he's an idiot. And he's he's actually it. like the smartest, <laughs> but he's actually the smartest person I've ever met 
And like he has a PhD in political science. So he's very well versed, especially like in election law and just keeping up to date on what's going on. And you know, we had got to talking just about how these mail-in ballots were going to affect the election. And when we heard states like Pennsylvania and like Georgia and Michigan and Wisconsin weren't going to start counting them until the first return started coming in, I was like, well, all these mail-in votes are going to go for Biden. Like that's that seemed pretty obvious, or at least like 80%. And in some counties, it was going to be like 95%, like just based on the way that people were talking and the messaging that Democrats were putting out versus what Republicans were coming out. It sounded like Republicans were like, get to the polls and go vote yourself. Democrats were like, hey, just sit back and fill out this ballot and send it in. You'll be good. Um, So you had all these states and Trump was a huge favorite in these international betting marks. I was like, well, if he flips this state, this state, and this state, he's going to win. He only needs to flip like three of these six states. So the odds kept moving. I got Biden at five to one to beat Trump like an hour and a half into election night. And every time there's a cap on that market, so you can only bet so much. But every time that the odds change, you can max out your bet once again. So I ended up getting in on Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania state betting, and Georgia. Uh, and they were huge underdogs at certain points because Trump was winning them by so much. And they just, it's like these international bodies had no conception that these mail-in ballots were going to be counted later. And this was going to be extended for a certain portion of the day. And I think that they felt where it was tracking so similarly to 2016 that they just decided Trump was going to win. That or they were taking a lot of Trump money well, I was gonna say, uh, in right? the betting markets. I mean, the, the, and, the books probably, you know, did really well from the 2020 election, even though you also did did well. It seemed like people who were paying attention um, did really well. But I, I know that there was a lot of there were a lot of Trump bets coming in and where things were trending very much like 2016, at least early on on election night, that it just looked like Trump was going to win without the caveat of knowing that these mail-in ballots were going to be counted after the polls had closed. So they weren't going to be reported for a while. And it just took the books so long to see that, that there was this like two-hour gap where there was just an opportunity to smash Biden, smash, 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 (laughs) smash, get as much money as possible. (laughs) It was one of those those rare instances where betting... uh, on cust or betting with cust actually paid off there a, li- a little bit so yeah i'm very uh very happy he was able to educate me on how this entire process was going to work all right last thing before we get to the uh the the final six questions 60 seconds who's your master's pick to win i mean i don't even have one yet okay i, I picked justin thomas before the year but i don't even know if i'm going to bet him anymore <laughs> all right six questions 60 seconds where were you born Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. You're the head of the Mayo Media Network and a host at DraftKings. What's one benefit and one cost of those jobs? The biggest benefit, especially being associated with DraftKings, is the extra visibility that you get being associated with a large entity like that. The drawback of running my own company was before I was on the phone with you, I've been up since 5 a.m. making payroll for the month and making sure my producers are coordinated with hosts to produce these other shows. The the, the paperwork that goes into these jobs uh, is very, very rarely talked about, but it's a huge part of the job. Right. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Ooh, 
I, I mean, not directly. Uh, the person I look at, strangely enough, is Dave Jacoby. From hmm. he's on ESPN. He was at Grantland before that. I've never met him or talked to him in my life, but. His career, when I saw what he was doing as a producer and then transforming into an on-air host and his personality on air, like he's fun, he's knowledgeable and he's fun. And that's what I wanted to be. Like I, I produce all my own stuff. I do the production end and I'm a host and I want to be fun too. So he's someone's career that uh, I actually would love to mirror. And I, I hope that I'm doing a good job of emulating that. Yeah, he and Jalen are great. Uh, who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Hmm. I, I was going to say you, but uh, <laughs> I, I am on your show, so that, that's going to be tough. Who do I like? It's funny that I, I don't listen to many things or watch many things that have to do with my industry in particular. I like to remain with my own thoughts. So if I double up on someone else's opinion, then you know it was purely by chance because I haven't listened to anything else. Just, just scrolling through. There is a show that I listen to. Uh, it's called The Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek recap podcast. And the two guys that run that show, they also have a bunch of different podcasts. Uh, it's like a movie review podcast, uh, like an up-to-date like drinking podcast. I just think that they're awesome. And people probably wouldn't peg me for that. But <laughs> yeah, Star Trek, The Next Generation, then Deep Space Nine, then Voyager recap podcast is probably my favorite podcast that I listen to. Wow. Well, there's a way, there's a discovery mechanism for people to find a new podcast. Uh, who's yeah. one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? I guess probably those guys. Uh, I think Pete Overset in the fantasy space. And now he's doing uh, like non-fungible tokens and Bitcoin. I just think that he's so funny. Uh, he is one of the very few people who's actually funny and smart in this space. There's a lot of people, myself included, who try to be funny. And it doesn't really work out because we're not comedians. Uh, Pete is... He's going to blow up soon. I'm just kind of waiting for it. But everything he does is hysterical and it's entertaining. And you learn stuff from it. That's such a hard mix to do. So Pete Overzet, if you haven't checked him out, go check him out. All right. Nice. Last one. One year from today, what's one prediction for the sports media? Oh, God. I hope I'm hosting the Green Zone PGA Cut Channel. <laughs> nice. That's going to be my prediction that I am hosting that. Because I can't imagine they would, if they started a green zone, which would be like you can see every shot for, like, for the cut for PGA, they'd have to do it with me, right? I've been talking about it for so long. That's right. They've got to they go back to the source. Pat, thanks but so they, much. They wouldn't, though. they wouldn't do that. Though. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like they wouldn't. We have to have to uh, cut down on the F-bombs, I guess, maybe for them. Yeah, people get that misconstrued all the time because... It's my show. It's my network. So I can say whatever I want. I think that podcasts are more fun when people swear. I've also hosted live TV where you're not allowed to swear. Like, I know the distinction between the mediums that I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Pat, thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Thanks to Pat Mayo. Follow him at The PME. Enjoy your Master's Week. My pick, John Rom. By the time you're listening to this, we'll see if I'm right. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free now at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. Next episode, we've got Ari Fleischer. You can download, follow, like, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Talk to you next time.